1: Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murand. This week we are joined by three former counsel at the Department of Justice, who currently work in private practice, to discuss what practicing immigration law at the Department of Justice was like versus private practice. For those who don't know, the Department of Justice are the lawyers who represent Immigration Refugees and Citizenship Canada, as well as the Canada Border Services Agency in judicial reviews, stays of proceedings, mandamus applications, and other federal court proceedings. The lawyers who we are speaking with today are Jennifer Dagsvik, Nalini Reddy, and Rafina Rashid. Jennifer worked as legal counsel at the Department of Justice from 2007 to 2017, and is now a lecturer in immigration and refugee law at the Boer Alaskan Faculty of Law in Thunder Bay. She is also the director at the Newcomer Legal Clinic there. Nalini worked as a lawyer at the Department of Justice from 1999 to 2017. She is currently an immigration lawyer at Gindin Siegel Law in Winnipeg. Rafina worked as a lawyer at the Department of Justice in the Immigration Division from 2010 to 2016. She is a partner and co-founder of Rashid Urosovic LLP, where she practices immigration law full-time. We discuss many topics, including why Jennifer, Nalini, and Rafina joined and eventually left the Department of Justice, the interview process to get hired there, what they liked most about working at DOJ and the things that they didn't like as much, things that it would be helpful for Department of Justice lawyers to understand about private practice and vice versa, what the training at the Department of Justice was like, challenges of being a woman in law, uh, tips for transitioning from government to private practice, work-life balance, and more. Jennifer Dagsvik can be reached on Twitter at Jen Dagsvik, so at J-E-N-D-A-G-S-V-I-K. Nalina can be reached by email at ready at gnsiegel.ca, so N-A-L-I-N-A dot R-E-D-D-Y, at gindinsegal.ca or on Twitter at winnipeg underscore Nalini, and Rafina can be reached at uh, her email, which is r-a-f-e-e-n-a at rulaw.ca, r-u-l-a-w.ca. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and I, I thought it was very fun to record. If you have any comments or you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Maybe if you each just want to introduce yourselves quickly as to how long you practiced at the Department of Justice. In which city and where you practice now?
0: I can go ahead. I am Jennifer Dagsbuck and I started at the Department of Justice in 2007 in Toronto um, and I worked at the immigration what was then called the Immigration Law Section at the Ontario Regional Office from uh, 2007 to 2009 and then moved to Vancouver where I transferred to the Vancouver office of the DOJ. And there I worked for um, a section that wasn't just immigration. It was um, public safety, defense and immigration, PSDI.
3: Oh, right. Okay.
0: Mm -hmm. And I left there in 2014 um, and moved to Thunder Bay. And there's no Mm. Department of Justice in Thunder Bay. Um, so I, uh, went into private practice and didn't expect to do immigration because I didn't think there was a lot of immigration law to be done in Thunder Bay and ended up being fairly busy with it. And then realized there's, um, no immigration clinic services in Thunder Bay or wow. all of Northwestern Ontario, which is a region, the size of France. And we do get immigration and we, we, you know, we're not, we're not as busy as the bigger centers, but, but we're busy enough. To justify a clinic and so we were able to get a grant with the law school here at Lakehead University um, to fund a legal clinic that's supported by students and I'm a lawyer for it now so that's that's where I'm at now not in private practice anymore.
1: What prompted the move to Thunder Bay?
0: I'm from here, so um, wow. is my husband and um, when we were in Vancouver we had one little girl while I was working at DOJ And then um, I got pregnant and we found out it was twins and it was right around the time (gasps) my husband needed, he was finishing his training and so he was sort of deciding where he wanted to work and we were sort of trying to decide, okay, are we staying in Vancouver? Are we going to Victoria or are we, are we moving home? And then when we found out it was twins, it was sort of a, yeah,
4: (laughs) maybe we (laughs) shouldn't.
1: That's quite a lot.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) What sort of files does the clinic work on now? like is it refugee work or like just all sorts
0: it's it's pretty varied um it's all sorts so our immigration population here in thunder bay a lot of former international students Mm -hmm. and and former international students um uh, that's a big part of the population at the college and the university here we've also become a refugee resettlement center in the last, I guess it's been six years now since the Syrian refugee crisis when um, Thunder Bay started receiving uh, resettled refugees on a regular basis so government assisted mm-hmm. refugees there's always been a sponsorship community here but um, resettled refugees in in large numbers so for us, you know, uh, we get about 200 people 200 250 people a year um, resettled to the city and and they need some support. You know, with one year window applications and things like that. So we don't mm. do every single one-year window application. A lot of them are straightforward enough. But if there's anything that's complicated, then right. help with that. We do a lot of advising people, especially former refugees, on helping their family members come over, helping sponsoring groups. Um and then, you know, there are people here who are out of status for many years and might be in yeah. a relationship and yeah. they don't know where to go and somehow they find their way to us. And, and it's nice to be able to offer that help.
3: And you're able to offer full representation or is it uh, mostly summary advice?
0: We are uh, able to offer full representation. That's great. Yeah, it is. It's it's really important. Um, for sure. We applied for a grant um, recently that, that only... Um, would allow us to offer summary advice, and I just thought, how how can we give advice and tell people what to do, especially vulnerable people um, who need complex applications done and who wouldn't be eligible for legal aid for these applications? How can you tell them what to do, and then say, okay, well, good luck finding a lawyer here because there isn't one. No, um, I know there, there is another lawyer who's in private practice, but you know you can't do all everything pro bono, right?
3: So. Yeah, it's so unfortunate because so many. There's so much, it's so much easier to get a grant to offer summary advice, but I just feel like summary advice just doesn't even scratch the itch. It's just like, uh, it makes you just as a, as a, as a public interest lawyer, it just makes you feel like your hands are tied so much of the time, you know, you can tell people what their problems are and then you can't help them fix them. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <Yeah. laughs> and cool. Nalini, what about, uh, what about you? You're in Manitoba, right?
5: Yes, I'm in Winnipeg. And uh, (laughs) I worked at the DOJ here for 18 years. (laughs) So I started when I was 12.
3: uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're very (laughs) ambitious. It's amazing. (laughs) I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Uh,
5: My mom, too. In in 2017, I left DOJ to go into private practice. I'd actually never intended to practice on behalf of the government, um, getting that job was just sort of a, a bit of an accident. I, I uh, had, after articling, gone on one of these foreign affairs sponsored internships mm-hmm. and worked at an NGO in Sri Lanka for seven months. And when I came back after some travels, um, there were these interviews that they were posting jobs for immigration positions. And I thought, all right, I'll apply just to see if I can get an interview so I can start interview practice, because I'd heard that their interviews were like oral exams. And um, I had a friend who worked in that office in a different section who gave me some tips on how to prepare. So I really prepared for it. Um, And then... And when I was offered a position, I was surprised and also didn't know what to do because I didn't really think I wanted to work there. Um, But I thought it would be a good place to get my feet wet because I really was interested in immigration law. And I just envisioned myself staying for a short time. <laughs> and uh, as I was telling the story to David Matas once, and I said, and it, was, it was an accident. And he said, how did it take you so long to recover from your accident?
3: <laughs> That's awesome. Because you would have appeared against him a whole bunch, I imagine.
5: <laughs> yeah, it was 80% of my work there. That's hilarious. <laughs>
6: Oh
5: my god! <laughs> so um, yeah, I, when I left private, left DOJ, I went to one of the bigger firms in Winnipeg, uh, just because I went, I wanted to join someone who had already been practicing immigration law for some time on the other side and could mentor me. Um, and that person wound up getting disbarred two years later. Um, oh so no! It, it was a bit of a gong show, but uh, I stuck around through that situation and but ultimately i just i was the only immigration lawyer there after that and i wanted to uh practice with others so now i've joined a new small firm that started last year about a year ago um which does criminal and immigration uh oh. we're called Ginden Gim- siegel law and uh, we're just six lawyers and that's where i'm practicing now so so we're doing in the first- first- new- sorry, sorry what was yeah. the
3: first firm you were at
5: it was piplato law
3: okay
1: oh right yeah, that- right, oh, right right of so
5: a full service firm
1: here right, about 70 okay. lawyers mm-hmm. and do you do criminal defense as well as immigration now
5: i don't yeah the rest most of the rest of my firm does well actually everybody else does except for me and then a couple of the other lawyers also do some immigration or refugee work primarily
1: yeah and doj were exclusively immigration or was it like in vancouver for where G- jennifer where it's a whole mix i of, went uh,
5: yeah, I was in that same section, PSDI, um, but I did pretty much strictly immigration. I did do a little bit of other work. I, the last couple of years, I worked on a bit of extradition and mutual legal assistance. And I also did a couple of uh, criminal law um, appe- amendment appeals. Um, you post David
3: for a career, yeah. <laughs> That's
1: mostly <laughs> what I did. <laughs> and now do you do mainly uh, like, federal court work, IRB, work permits. What's the kind of the breakdown of your practice now?
5: It's pretty much all over the board. Uh, The only thing I don't do is business immigration. I I mean, I do do work permits for employers and whatnot, but um, I I do as much litigation as comes my way. It's just that, you know, it's, as you all know, it's not a viable solution to a lot of immigration law problems. And so there, in a smaller center like Winnipeg, there isn't going to be enough federal court litigation to make a practice out of it. But I do do that and I do IRB work as well and lots of, um, you know, a variety of kinds of immigration applications.
1: Yeah, I don't know very many lawyers who have a pure federal court practice. Yeah. Um, And Rafina, what about you? I think you're in Toronto.
4: I am. I uh, started at DOJ in 2010 after Jen left, and uh, but before that, I worked at the Immigration and Refugee Board before I went to law school. In my first two years of practice, I did criminal defense work and was really starting to hate it. So I was really glad to get the call from DOJ when they asked if I was still interested. And I uh, spent six and a half years there in the Immigration Law Division. It's siloed in Toronto, so you are in your section and you pretty much only do work in that that practice area. So everything that I did had to do with immigration and public safety. What and then, into, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, uh, I was just going to ask. So, what were you doing at the IRB before law school?
4: I was the now just. Uh, It doesn't exist anymore. It's a refugee uh, protection officer. And then I think it went to be a tribunal officer. But that all went the way of the dodo when the members started questioning first. Mm -hmm. So that, that position is no longer necessary.
1: And so then you left DOJ in what year again? In
4: 2016
1: and your practice now, you're in private practice. I think it's you and um, another ex-DOJ lawyer started a firm yes. together.
4: Yes, Yelena Orozavik, her and yeah. I, we worked to, we went to law school together. We worked at, we started at DOJ on the same day and we exited on the same day. <laughs> so uh, we started the firm together here in Toronto and uh, it's just the two of us, two lawyers. Uh, we have a pretty much full practice in immigration. Well, not really. We don't do any refugee work anymore. We did when we started,
6: yeah.
4: uh, but we don't do any more refugee work. We do federal courts and IED and then the whole breadth of immigration.
3: Hmm. What was the function of the RPO? I never appeared before the RPD when before they did reverse order questioning.
4: Uh, so the RPO would do the questioning instead of the member.
3: Ah, interesting hmm okay i find that hard to imagine but uh so the,
4: the council it's almost like question... having
3: another lawyer like at the at the hearing basically yeah
4: except not all rpos or tribunal officers were lawyers
3: right okay
4: um so the member the council would question first and okay. then the rpo and then if the member had any kind of clarifying questions they would ask their questions and then there were each Council and the RPO would give
3: submissions. Okay, I see, interesting.
4: And then the other role that the RPOs would play was when uh, they had an expedited team where we would do expedited interviews for like Sri Lanka, Somalia, Zimbabwe, um, and then make recommendations as to whether the claim should be accepted without a hearing
3: or go to a full hearing. Okay, right. So like now the current case review system sort of. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Well, I, I told some people we were doing this uh, episode. Both people at the Department of Justice, as well as uh, in private practice, there were a, a lot of you know questions asked. But I guess the one that's kind of the the easiest, but also kind of the lamest, but probably a good starting point is: uh, What did you like most about the Department of Justice, as well as like? Not the least, but wasn't your favorite part at the Department of Justice? Mm-hmm. And I was just going with uh, Jennifer. Obviously, when we appeared opposite each other, that was the best.
0: Well, <laughs> that was my memorable moments of DOJ. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I I really loved the Department of Justice when I was there. I was I sort of I started in private uh-huh. practice with art. with first with like, six or months or so of practice. I at a big firm and then moved to a big firm in Ontario because I articled in Vancouver and then Ontario articled and practiced at a big firm Um, and I very quickly realized that wasn't the kind of law I wanted to practice and that I didn't want to be a big firm lawyer and that that just wasn't where I saw myself going in my career and this job at the Department of Justice came up um, with five hours left to apply and so Mm -hmm. I threw together an application and Ended up getting an interview that I went to the wrong place for. Um, Rufina, you know that in the Toronto office, there are two different elevator banks with two different sort of main offices, and I went to the wrong main office. And so um, it was 20 minutes late, and I thought for sure they're never going to hire me because I'll go to the wrong courtroom and I won't show up ever. And, you know, (laughs) Um, but they hired me anyway. And I was hired with five other people who um, became really good friends in Toronto. And it was just, like, a lovely place to learn how to be a lawyer. It, the, the first day um, of our training, which was, you know, three weeks intensive, long training, um, Ursula Kasmarchik was the director at the ORO at the time, and she put us all down, and she said, welcome to the Department of Law and Justice. It's not to win or lose. And you're guided by the public interest. And it just a nice way to sort of look at the way that that we were supposed to be practicing and the work we were supposed to be doing. Um, And the work was really interesting. I, you know, you start out with um, refugee protection decisions and the stories are fascinating. Um, So, so that was that part of things was interesting and then you know you get to work on really complicated files very quickly uh, you're not but you're not responsible for them because a more senior lawyer is responsible for them so as a junior lawyer it's like this amazing experience where you're um able to write at least at when you're quite junior like i was um just starting out i i wrote a number of supreme court of canada leaf actums and i don't think at that stage of my career so it was, I would have been able to do that. Um, and I worked on a security certificate file, which was, you know, really interesting. And and I learned a lot from that. It was a unique experience. And out in private practice, that probably wouldn't have been where I was. Um, but again, big part of a team, right? So there are many other lawyers working on that. And, and
1: um, what,
0: it was interesting to be a
1: So what is, um, the, uh, the, interview just that, what is the interview process like? Like I think Nalini had said that She applied an interview in part because it was, the interview itself is just a good experience. I know private practice it's, at least I I think at most firms, a very informal process, the interviewing. Um, I imagine government is a bit more structured.
4: The hiring process is multi-stage. So you have to do a written component, and then you do the interview if you pass the written component. And there's a panel that interviews you. So it's more than one person, sometimes some between two and three people are on the panel. And uh, they ask you very, I remember one question that I got when I was interviewed, and it was just after the Dunsmare decision. And I didn't have that in law school because the court just handed it down and I was just printed off the decision, which was like, I don't know, hundred pages and yeah, reading first. it in the taxi on the way down to the office and trying to figure out what it said. Um, so yeah, how does the standard of, re- how has the standard of review changed? And that, I, that one I had to pass on because I didn't, <laughs> didn't quite grasp it at wow. the time. Um, I'm not sure I still do, <laughs> 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 but uh, they, they ask you very um everyone gets asked the same question. So everyone who is in that pool that is going to be interviewed for the position gets asked exactly the same question. Someone on the panel is taking notes to document what it would have said. And um, it's just like Nalini said, law school type questions. So situational, they wanna know that whether you can deal with other people. So some
3: HR type questions,
4: suitability
3: questions. Whether you can think on your feet, uh,
4: yeah. yeah, judgment questions as well.
3: Yeah,
6: right. Yeah.
1: At your sure. uh, own firms now, do you try to replicate that more formal process, or have you adopted so, like, in, like going that? out general, formal, so like, one like, one interview, <laughs> yeah, basically?
4: When we <laughs> uh, interview students, we ask, we do ask them situational type questions. Um, we're more concerned with, because they're students, whether they can research. So we want a writing sample from them right. um, and whether they can communicate. So we don't take them out for dinner. And our firm is 100% virtual, so we don't necessarily ever have to sit down with them. Interesting.
1: What about you, Nalene? I-
5: I um, was on the hiring committee uh, at at PLATO And um, so but there, you know, it's a bigger firm. So there is a little more structure, um, but not at all like the Department of Justice uh, interviews in that, you know, we weren't asking them to cite a section of the charter and discuss a case relating to it. um, And um, it was what you would what I think most people would expect at a big firm kind of interview where you want to get a good sense as to whether the person is going to the big thing being are they going to be a good fit here um so still more structured but not in the sense of the DOJ interviews which have to be structured that way because they're government interviews right so if anybody ever takes issue then they can point to all of the um the structures that were put in place and how they were adhered to
1: do you think yeah. it leads to the hiring of a different person in the end, or is kind of the end result the same?
5: That's an interesting question.
3: Hmm. <laughs> I I think it
0: diminishes the importance of things like connections. Mm-hmm. When we when I was in practice with um, with a colleague. Um, here in town, we did try to be more structured about um, student interviews in particular when we were interviewing for student placements. Um, And that was just so, you know, we'd have nine or 10 applicants, and it would just allow us to sort of level the playing field. And we usually knew at least a couple of the applicants, this being a small town. Um, And I think it would have been easy to just say, oh, sure, applicant, who you know, we know from whatever sport that we play, like, come on, you can, you can do a placement with us. But, um, by, by having that kind of structure, it, it allowed us to look a bit more at the merits. We didn't have anything as intense as the DOJ questions. Cause yeah, those you really had to prepare for, I think, to do a good mm-hmm. interview, you had to prepare in advance. Um, but we did have something that where we could sort of try to compare people a little bit more
3: objectively. Yeah. Did you know what the questions were going to be in advance for the DOJ interview? No. Okay, you just were trying to guess based on, and if other people in that same cohort were interviewed, were people trying to share the questions that they had? No, okay. You don't well, necessarily uh, know who else is being interviewed. Okay, of course, yeah. Yeah,
4: yeah. well, at least in Toronto, you don't, because it's it, it, if it's an open, it can be anyone from anywhere
3: in the yeah. country who's applied it's really interesting because I, I totally get what you're saying, Jennifer, about the, the connection. Um, and I also think that there are certain things that I think for junior lawyers, they sort of tend to fall, they run aground on the same types of issues. It's like being able to, um, to to be decisive, you know, and so having to kind of like really answer questions and actually you know, commit to a position. I think that that, like, especially if you're looking for a litigator, that can be really challenging, you know, like you have to commit to a strategy and figure out this is where you're going. You can't sort of like waffle. And I think that sometimes for juniors, that is something that they really struggle with. And this is some kind, of, I don't know if it's an accurate way of assessing whether or not they're going to be good at that, but it is a kind of a way. It's very interesting.
1: How many files would you work on at any given time when you were in the uh, like immigration files or other files, if it was, uh, if you weren't just doing immigration, because until the last two years, at least in Vancouver, you'd see the same six or seven names at the Department of Justice. Now it seems they're bringing in a lot of new people. And from what I understand, uh, there's a lot of lawyers and other sections who've been brought in to help with just an explosion of uh, immigration cases. But Mm -hmm. I always used to wonder like how many cases are they could like they must you know if I'm always coming across the same names, I assume other lawyers are, and how many files would you work on like at a time?
5: Do any of you remember I don't I can I honestly have... say though that not nearly as many as I do now
0: <laughs> i things moved faster too there, like. You could open a and clo- open and close a file in in months, depending on what your mm-hmm. role on it was. You would have longer ones that would last. So, like, um, mm-hmm. I, I I can remember a week. Like, I remember thinking that a week where I had three federal court here. No, I I would rarely have a week where I had three mem- memos due and a court hearing or two, and maybe I was on stay duty. That would be a busy week. Um, but then you'd also have bigger funds have- like that that you know might be more sort of labor intensive, but they'll both. stick around for more years, more more like in the year or two or three range, depending on what's happening with them. So I don't know, maybe like yeah, I couldn't even hazard a guess at a number, actually. Hmm. Hmm. Ten yeah. to twenty, thirty max, I think.
1: How many like leave applications would you say like in a week you'd have to review? like just, where you yeah, get an applicant's record.
5: Oh, I see a handful, not. A handful wouldn't like
1: been... So like the day to day, cause this was a question. Some of the, some junior lawyers asked is from the private bar perspective, it seems like DOJ's main role is to argue that a decision was reasonable. Is that kind of how you like what, how your day-to-day was or like what went on day-to-day beyond what I think the private sector sees, which is just written factums or memos about why a decision was reasonable.
5: I have to say that, um, for me, and this was actually the thing that I liked the most about working there was that like Jen mentioned was uh, said to her in her initial training there that it wasn't said to me, but I learned, um, from working there, that you know our job was, in fact, to uh, uphold the law and to make sure that it was applied in a, in a fair way and in a you know, consistent way. And so um, whenever I got a new file, the first thing I would do was look it over to ensure that I didn't think that there were any errors or any breaches of fairness, and then, when I did, recommend to the client department that they consent. Um, so that really was the thing that was the silver lining for me, because otherwise I did I didn't love having to be the bad guy all the time, having to, you know, look at all these sympathetic back patterns and then say, well, you know, but it was reasonable for the decision maker to look at it this way. Or, yeah, it was clear, clearly an innocent misrepresentation on your part, but the law says that's too bad. You're still inadmissible.
3: I find this part always super interesting because, and especially when I first heard about this component of the role when I was a junior uh, that, you know, now I always have in my mind that I'm sure that a lot of these conversations occur, whether or not I know about them. So I always sort of have that in mind when I'm dealing with DOJ that like ultimately the DOJ lawyers taking instructions from a client as well. And so, um, you know, so that, um, just knowing that those those conversations occur and that, of course, those are going to be privileged conversations. Um, and so, I don't know, I think it's just, it's always good, I think, for private bar practitioners to recognize that those conversations may be occurring uh, behind the scenes. And so, um, I don't know, I think that that gave me a, a lot of insight when I started having conversations with DOJ lawyers at conferences and stuff like that, and understanding that, um, you know, that that's how it worked. I think that's really
4: good to underscore, Diana, because based on some of the comments that we see on the listserv, a lot of private bar lawyers see DOJ and their client as one uh and failing to recognize that DOJ lawyers are just like the rest of us. They have clients and they have to, they take instructions from those clients. It's not necessarily the position of that lawyer. I mean, that being said, some lawyers have a different way of communicating the position, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a whole other story.
6: Yeah.
0: (laughs) I think
4: also something
0: that I didn't realize um, when I was at DOJ and that that I realize more now is that the DOJ lawyer doesn't know everything about the person's situation, right? So we get – your lead record. Um, I'm saying we still, so you can see how I've identified myself as a <laughs> lawyer, but putting myself back in those shoes if I'm. If I I'm still in- do that as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> well. Um, so, putting myself back in those shoes, I'm looking at a leave record and I have that, and that's it. Like, I don't have access to GCMS or FOSS <laughs> as it was then. Um, the doj does have access to well you can get it from the client but um you don't talk to the client on every single file so if you're looking at the file and all seems to be in order and maybe there's you know there's something there you can see why they're litigating but um but the de- the decision's very much defensible it's it's not the case that we would necessarily always contact the client to ask for more information i think every office's culture is a, probably a little bit different on that i found um, maybe Vancouver contacted a bit more than Toronto used to, mm-hmm. um, just because of the volume of the work and the nature of the files that you would see there and stuff like that. Um, so now I think I've realized the importance of if I do have a litigation file, which being in Thunder Bay, I don't, you know, we don't generate a lot of that Um I, I would pick up the phone more readily or send an email more readily to provide some context, maybe to, mm-hmm. to, be to help them recognize
3: what issues might not be apparent even from the record. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, you say that Vancouver uh, makes contact more regularly than Toronto. That used to be the case very much. Um, Vancouver I think has been super, super inundated with Uh, with federal court work. And I think not all like real federal court work. I think that for a while people were using the federal court as a way to get fast access to um, to Rule 9 reasons rather than going through an ATIP request. And so I think that they've kind of gummed up the entire federal court (laughs) process because the um, I don't know I mean this is just stuff that I'm that I'm hearing and that I understand from um, from other members of the private bar as well that like so it's kind of like it just it's it's meant that the lawyers don't have the same bandwidth to kind of pick up a file and kind of do a thorough examination of it which is really unfortunate because I think that it doesn't Um, It's really nice when there's able to be more time spent on those applications and cases that could be settled get settled before the client has to go to the expense of perfecting the record because it really is significant it's so much work as you guys know from the private uh, from the private practitioner standpoint you know so um, it's a lot and so. Um, putting the client and, and one of the things that I don't know if you guys are seeing this as well that, um, we're getting settlements and then they go back to the visa office and you get another refusal. And so, um, it's just, uh, this is kind of one of the, um, one of the things that I feel like has really diminished the, the impact of federal courts litigation right now. Um, and I just wish that it could be a bit more conversational in general. And I know that there are limitations of client-sister privilege, but I feel like the fact that there's so much volume and there's uh, there's so, sort of like a lack of resource issue, I feel like it's, it's um, you know, it goes back to what Nalini was saying about, uh, or no, I think that this was you, Jennifer, just saying that like litigation is not the best way to resolve all issues. I didn't, you know, I used to have more, confidence in the pragmatism of federal court litigation but lately I feel like the bloom is off the rose in some ways because I you know I I don't necessarily always feel like even getting it sent back to the visa office is going to be leading to the right result anyways it's just it's a lot about resources and and time and all that and maybe culture as well
5: I don't know well um, one thing that I think may have changed the culture a little bit at DOJ sorry am I echoing like crazy
3: a little bit. Yeah. I'm not I sure why what that just happened. started.
5: Yeah. It wasn't like that before.
3: Mm-mm. Okay. No, okay. now it seems to be gone.
5: Um, so uh, a few years ago, DOJ changed, um, at least I'm pretty sure it was nationally uh, changed their structure in terms of how files would be distributed. And I can't, re- I can't give the proper description of the model right now, but um, basically they would, people wouldn't be um, restricted to their areas anymore, and they would be expected to take files across the portfolio. So previously, you know, in any given DOJ office, you had a breakdown into certain sections. And in an office like Winnipeg, it was just basically three sections, the public safety, defense, and immigration, uh, tax, and aboriginal. Uh, But then they changed the model and people were expected to do files across portfolios. Um, So I think that would have also affected Mm. the ability to have the kinds of discussions that we're talking about, right? Right. Because those people wouldn't be anywhere near as familiar. They'd have no familiarity with the practice area, the workings of the client, how these kinds of matters typically unfold, right? And so they'd be far less uh, likely to be open to having a conversation towards settlement, early settlement
3: yeah for sure
1: what were the different approaches um, yeah sorry go ahead I,
4: I was going to say another factor that plays into the approach DOJ takes is that they only know the file from the time the decision has been rendered to the end of the litigation and this is something that I think all of us the DOJ lawyers on this panel we experience is that we didn't know any of the front-end work before because none Mm -hmm. of us had done that so from the Mm -hmm. time the client comes to you to the time the application is submitted and any you know responses in the um, before a decision is made doj has no idea what any of that entails and any of the complexities or what some of the requirements are or what what's what the impact of certain things are on a file or on a client so i think at least for me, looking back on it, that if I had that knowledge as a DOJ lawyer, that would have been very helpful in dealing with the file and also dealing with the client.
3: Yeah, like, even the nuances of how an express entry application is filed, for example, like, I know, I I am always a bit sensitive to that, that, like, when I'm trying to explain, like, or there, (laughs) sometimes it's even stuff like, well, why don't, you know, like, just communicate this to the department. It's like, well, how? how? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no way. I have no communication tools. <laughs> um, and so, like, so those kinds of things. I think that being a DOJ practitioner, you wouldn't understand the like limitations that we face, or like, or I mean, even just stuff like, um, you know, sometimes like, you know, things that get argued. For example. Um, at the IAD like certain things get argued in the alternatives and it's like well either we want to stay or we would like for this to be this appeal to be allowed and it's kind of like these are just sort of things that get argued like just routinely you know and then suddenly you're at federal court well anyways I'm speaking to Steve is smiling because he knows the case that I'm uh mm-hmm. <laughs> that I'm, uh, that I'm Uh, that I'm referring to but where at federal court it became a thing where like what does this mean there has to be a different test for a stay versus uh, allowing the appeal and it's like but this is something that litigators do at the IAD every day it's like you know so but it's just like they're just nuances to practicing at the you know in the first instance that I think I I appreciate that being DOJ you would have no um, insight into that so um but I, I do like what Jennifer's saying about the whole idea of like an onboarding and having there be like a mentorship, like a true mentorship opportunity for a junior lawyer, because I think that that is a little bit different. Um, I mean, certainly we make a big effort in our small firms to offer a mentorship for junior lawyers, but it is still different. Like, it's not really, it's hard to make a team approach. To litigation when you're working in a small yeah. farm like it's just so um, in terms of like a new lawyer breaking into practice coming out of school the idea of like being taken on from a team and getting really diverse practice but also being like raised as a lawyer I think I can see how the appeal would be there because I think first day of your practice in a private firm, yes, there's somebody who's there who's going to mentor you, but still it's ultimately your file. And, you know, like you're responsible for it. And there's just there's not that many places where you can go where, um, you know, you're gonna have a senior lawyer overlooking all the work you're going to do. So um, it's just one of the the uh the things about an immigration practice because there's just not big immigration firms, at least not on the West Coast anyways.
5: Well, and just the training and the time that people have for you when they're in an office like DOJ, right, it's completely different from in private practice. So I can say I, I benefited from that a great deal because and also the DOJ um, in general places a really uh, a lot of importance on the written product. And a lot of time and energy is invested in that. So I really benefited from that and was able to hone my writing skills over many years in a way that I and also have input from many different people across the country. Because if you write any, if you write a memorandum of argument or um, or a federal court or higher factum, um, then it's going to be scrutinized by various levels. Right. And so a lot of people have input into it. And by virtue of that, you usually become a much better writer. And so that's really something that you are almost never going to have that kind of experience.
1: in, sure. in The work. written product that DOJ produces is really exceptional. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a memo of response from the Department of Justice that wasn't like impeccable grammar, um, and just <laughs> well structured. Uh, and I read you know, I request from the federal court quite a bit of applicants' records because sometimes when I read a federal court decision, I'm curious as to what the actual underlying facts are. And you know, the the private bar I think produces much more varied writing uh, than mm-hmm. DOJ does. Sure. What and just, so and time? Just the training right? time. It's, yeah, yeah,
3: it's time, and <laughs> and it's not like it's not like um, you know. Especially when you're doing stuff that's in a public interest kind of a way, like we're not charging tons of money, like not that justifies the amount of time you spend on that work. Like producing an applicant's record is like a lot of effort and um you know, and even just keeping abreast of all the rule changes and how to do the right formatting and you know, all that kind of stuff, like there's a lot to be done in that time. I remember the first time I produced an applicant's record, like because I was essentially a private practitioner and I I mean I was working not for profit but I didn't I wasn't I didn't have a senior lawyer and I'd never done an immigration file before I'd never done any file before so I like actually found another member of the private bar to be like could you please read my memo I went to Elgin Cannon and I asked like Doug and Chris to like could you please read this and see if it's terrible and they spent like you know two hours reading my pleadings. that was my training (laughs) So, you know, like you kind of have to like hit the ground running when you're when you're not uh, with justice and figure out how to get these things and just learn by, you know, learn on the ground. It's um, so I like the idea of that kind of uh, exposure.
1: Yeah, my second or third month, I did my first hearing in federal court picking up on another lawyer's file and Mm -hmm. it really was trial by fire. Mm -hmm. As far as um at DOJ like the interactions with private bar were there I imagine there was a wide range in how private bar lawyers approached trying to get you know, I was about to use the term settlements but I was just thinking back like there was a DOJ lawyer in Vancouver who recently remarked to me that their pet peeve has become private bar lawyers using the term settlement or calling them to say hey we'd like to discuss settlement options and the Department of Justice Lawyer was saying there is no settlement options. They want us to allow the file. It's not like (laughs) we'll ever say, well, half the person can come to Canada and half stays abroad. Like, either they're in or they're out. But what were the, um, like, were there approaches that you found helpful or unhelpful as far as interacting with private counsel?
4: I was fairly new in my practice when I started at DOJ, and... I found that more senior members of the bar, when I went to court, tried to use their knowledge and experience as an
1: intimidation tactic. Oh, that's interesting. Um,
4: Overall, or like throughout the years, I didn't have, there was only one private bar lawyer that I had any real problem with. But for the most part, I found that, um, most people were easy to easy to deal with, but I think that goes back to what I said earlier about how you approach the file and how you communicate your client's instructions or how you try to get information from from opposing counsel. Um, I was not very confrontational and didn't dig my heels in unless um, there was a reason to. So that sort of carried over into when we started the firm, we got a lot of our very first files through referrals from the private bar. So I think that Yellen and I had a fairly good reputation as DOJ lawyers and, and our interactions with the private bar um, while we were there. But there were some lawyers who who tried to use, and mostly the older people who had more of a, you know, 15 years or more practice. Just try to use that. I remember the first day that I did in federal court, and I was very nervous. And I don't like public speaking, but yet I became a litigator. Uh, <laughs> and my my voice quivers a little bit until I get comfortable in in you know in the flow of what's going on. And I had this very senior lawyer say to me, "Now, dear, so uh, you did very well for your first day." I ended, up, <laughs> I ended up winning the stake. I mean, that's not here or there, but it was just the the paternalistic attitude that was yeah.
3: conveyed to me. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I actually, I mean, I've been practicing for 14 years now and I still get that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of <laughs> adrenaline for sure. Who yeah. do you get that from in private practice? Like clients or? Uh,
4: from male... We've we've had students actually, male students who try to pull rank. Oh my god. Oh. If you if you can oh. believe it or not. Yeah, we've we've had uh one in particular, one articling student who thought that he could come in and rule the roost and didn't <laughs> want to take I mean he didn't
6: last
4: oh, he didn't last very long, but uh yeah I'm I'm not sure what it is, but it usually comes from Male, cl- male clients as well some depending yeah. on what part of the world they're from don't feel like they that I I know what I'm doing on, on their
3: file yeah. yet they
4: hired me to to uh, assist them so yeah
3: There's a certain expectation of an A type personality. Like if you don't come out like guns blazing, it's like, do you know what you're doing? It's like, yeah, this is just my style. I'm not a confrontational person. (laughs) You know, it's like, if you're a litigator, you must be like kind of an asshole, you know, (laughs) that that's like that bully style. That's what they've seen on TV. And they think if you're not going to like punch your fist into the podium, you're not really um, advancing their interests or something like that.
5: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the
0: rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with
3: Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
1: Did you also, like, we haven't ever actually talked, we haven't done a podcast episode yet about Uh, gender or racial barriers Mm. to the actual private practice or government practice of law? Like, did you experience, have you experienced the same, Deanna, where like at McRae, I guess, people would assume that Kyle or Ryan were the heads of the firm or something like that? or.
3: Well, I have on a regular basis. So we bought our firm from Dennis McRae, but I've had on a regular basis where people will email Dennis who we bought the firm from years ago. They will email Dennis to like, to, to, to complain about me, you know? And then, and, and sometimes even now Dennis is retired many years ago from time to time. Still, sometimes people will write to Dennis <laughs> his private address to be like, Deanna didn't da, da, da you know? And it's like, Okay. And Dennis will be like, well, thank you. Well, Deanna does know way, way more about this than I do. And she now owns the firm and I have no idea what you're talking about. So, um, but yeah, that's definitely, I think, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, um, uh, you know, I think that that is a, a thing that, that I don't know if I should say most. I think that women do experiencing that and I'm, I'm a white woman. So I think if I were also uh, racialized, I can imagine that it would be even more so, but, um, uh, but yeah, it's certainly something that, that we see a lot. Um, And all of the, the, and and I think that um, we have, uh, you know, women of color who work at our firm and they too experience this where they get, they get told off to us. And oftentimes it's like, I look over the file and it's like, perfect pristine like I just like it's unimpunable and I'm like okay well I don't I don't see what the concern is here I understand you're frustrated that this is taking time but like there are certain things that are just not in our control but this notion of like going above the person's head it doesn't happen with the males in our firm and it does um with the with the women and especially those who have an accent or you know so so yeah I, I think it's a real thing
1: and that kind I feel
5: of Nalini? Like I, oh, I was just going to say, I feel like I've been pretty fortunate in my practice in that regard. You know, I have had the odd experience. One that I recall is um, a long time ago when I worked at DOJ, we did these secondments to, it was still all IRCC then. Um, that tells you how long ago it was. But um, hmm. they, the hearings unit was therefore a part of IRCC and those of us who worked in immigration practice at DOJ in Winnipeg got to do six months secondments to that hearings unit, which was actually a really great experience getting to work inside the client like that. So I did two of these and um, I went to do an intervention at a refugee hearing. And um, I'm so we're there at the start and I'm sitting behind the little placard that says minister's counsel and the board member walks in and looks at me and says, oh, hi, are you any, are you the interpreter? <laughs> it was the claimant was Indian. Right? Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh. That I've heard. Uh, that that I've heard from a few uh, a few lawyers that they always get mistaken for being the interpreter.
4: When I uh, worked, when I worked at the IRB, I was mistaken for admin, like a case uh, officer. Yeah. The members thought I was a case officer, and then when I showed up in the hearing room, they're like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs>
6: wow.
1: What what prompted. Uh, the decision to move I know Jennifer it sounds like yours was because you were having twins Uh, but for (laughs) uh, Nalini and Rafina what prompted the decision to move I guess for Nalini after 17 years of her temporary job with the Department of Justice and did you receive any cautions from uh, like DOJ lawyers or especially after a career that long in terms of going out and starting your own firm and leaving kind of the security of the Department of Justice, right? Like that federal government position.
5: Um, yeah. So for me, the reason was, as I was sort of adverting to initially, I hadn't really intended to work for the government. Um, and I'd always kind of thought about working in private practice, specifically in immigration and refugee law. Um, and I actually think that what finally got it into my head was uh, my spouse was changing firms as well. He's also a lawyer um, after a long time. And I suddenly just woke up one day and thought, you know what, if I just continue on this path and finish out my career at DOJ, uh, well, I'll have a really incredible pension, I will be really regretful about not having gone to do the thing that I really always wanted to do. And so that was that was it. And um, the hard part was just figuring out how to do it. I don't think that anybody at the DOJ really cautioned me against it. I mean, really, I didn't tell anyone until I had the the entire plan in place. Right. Uh, So uh, there was that Um, nobody. It's really unusual to do it in to spend that long working in-house in public practice and then go into private practice. It almost always goes the other way, right? People are like, I need something that is saner now and quieter as they get older. And so, you know, it was, (laughs) I can't say it's been a little (laughs) challenging in that regard, but um, I, I don't regret it for one moment. I, it is way more consuming of my waking hours and my energy. um, But it's really, for me personally, just because of where my interests lay, um, I really value this work. I value the opportunity to be able to assist people with things that are of such fundamental importance to them.
6: Mm-hmm. Um, and
5: yeah. I like that I'm happy to have had the experience working at DOJ so that when I'm dealing with litigation matters, I have a really good understanding of how the whole thing works so that I can advocate in the best way for people.
3: And you have the skills too, like you've developed. The skills,
5: that. Yeah. <laughs> And I just want to, I know I want to let Rafina answer this question, but just while I'm on that subject, one observation I've made now that I've moved to this, to private practice in the same area of law is I really do feel like there is an unfair playing field. Um, You know, the DOJ, the government in general just has endless resources, right? And we, as you were talking about Deanna in the private bar your resources are often extremely limited your time is limited you know um, and that's a massive factor in what you can do um, sure. and, uh, and and then there's, there are ways in which law I feel is also rather skewed um, but it does it, it makes it a lot more challenging for, for sure. applicants to be successful in litigation and especially in the immigration sphere.
3: Yeah. And it's also like, it's not just resources that it's like, also like your client's work permit might be expiring or their wife might be pregnant, you know? So like all these other factors, it's not just like the argument and the memo and the timeline. It's like there's their life to arrange around the litigation, which I think just makes from a practitioner's perspective, it's so challenging. Um, anyways I'd I'd love to um, hear from Rafina and um, but I also want to maybe at some point hear from everybody like how hard is it to make that transition from DOJ to private practice I can imagine that that would be like kind of like um, it's sort of like I the only thing I can compare it to is like going from being you know an associate to like owning a firm where all of a sudden you're now Mm -hmm. having to take on that like that firm management thing but I can imagine that there's like you know, just having to learn, like, as you said, all of you, the like, how do you make an application? You know, you've seen them from in like applicants records, but you haven't prepared them before. And yet you're a 17 year call. And so, you know, that just I'm really interested in hearing how that worked.
1: Well, and just to piggyback on that question, there's also the whole side of immigration law that I, I don't think you really see in litigation, which are say, you know, all the Kusma, formerly NAFTA, work permits for Americans or like if, and this is something that the Department of Justice lawyers here ask about when we go for lunch or coffee about the whole corporate work permit practice, which is going to sound a bit weird, but unless the applicants are from, say, India or a visa post with a high refusal rate, yeah. the I, I don't know if there's ever been a reported federal court decision on an American engineer wanting to work in Canada and yet that can be the bulk of some people's yeah. private practices yeah
3: yeah yeah the whole business side of it like yeah. you know figuring out how to balance your practice like you know where how do you make sure that there's enough money to like pay your staff and pay your rent and all that kind of thing
1: yeah if you yeah. know what was your uh like yeah. uh, your, your experience um
3: so the entire
4: time I was at DOJ I was on contract I Still got all the benefits and the pension and everything, but just not the job security of knowing that I don't have to worry about whether another contract is going to come down the line. And so over that six and a half year period, we went through uh, you know, various terms of employment, two years, six months, nine months. Um, and that was just getting a bit... Boring to deal with, um, and also it was having a negative impact on the section. Uh, when I started there, it was the best place to work. I never thought I was going to leave. I loved it. the The people were amazing to work with. It was like a medium-sized firm feeling within the department because you could just walk down the hall to someone and say, Hey, do you have a second to talk to me? Uh to you know help me hash out this issue. And during the entire time I was there, no one ever said, No, I'm too busy. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. no matter how yeah, busy same. they were, they always made time. Um so like Jen was saying at the beginning, the mentoring that you received there was absolutely amazing and I'm so grateful for it because I left Uh, working with a sole practitioner who was you know running from one courthouse to another and preparing clients for trial and not really having any time to develop help me develop my skills to going to an environment where I was mentored for six months and nothing went out of the the office unless it was signed off on by by that Uh senior lawyer to um and, and it was hard to to leave the people. I was happy mm. to leave the bureaucracy, but it was hard to leave the people. Mm. So making the decision to leave actually wasn't that hard once I decided that I didn't didn't want to deal with the bureaucracy anymore. Mm. Um, and then I made the time like I because I didn't was there there was no urgency, like I was the only one who knew I I wanted to leave. I just took the time to plan. I met with all kinds of people who were in private practice who had been either working for themselves for a while or worked for a firm and talked to them about how to set up the firm, what kind of practice we should have. Um, And then throughout the course of the planning, Yelena uh, came on board and we uh, gave our notice. So we gave, I think about two months notice before we left. So there was like a lot of time for people to talk to us. Everyone in our section was very supportive. Some of them thought we were a little crazy, but they were still supportive.
3: Um, You kind of did the double thing of not just going into private practice, but going into private practice as a business owner.
4: Mm -hmm. Yes. And neither neither of us had done that before. Like, we're, we're... we never knew we were entrepreneurial.
6: Yeah.
4: Uh, so we wear, you know, the business owner hat and the lawyer hat all at the same time, and having to balance that. I have to say, I'm very like when I initially made the decision to leave, it was to go out and be a solo practitioner. But I am very grateful that oh goodness, I have yeah. Yelena to um, share some of the the burden and you know totally. the fun stuff with. Um, so that's really good. Uh, Nalini said something that I wanted to follow up on, and now I can't remember <laughs> what it was, uh, but it's much easier being a respondent than it is being an applicant, because it's very easy to poke holes in a decision after the fact, as opposed to come up with really strong arguments, mm. at, like right from right from the beginning. So that has been a huge transition. Um, the going back to what I said earlier about not knowing how, like how things, how applications uh, were done right from the beginning, we had to set up processes so that we gave our time ourselves time to kind of learn about a particular issue that a client was interested in before we actually met with them and mm-hmm. and gave them any kind of advice on how to proceed. So. We were self-taught, but we've developed a pretty good network of uh, other private bar lawyers who we can go to for advice and assistance, and most most importantly, precedent. Because at DOJ, there was no shortage of precedent. <laughs> you could just, you know, look up something that someone else had written and, you know, craft your argument accordingly. But uh, that was that was also something that was good to have coming, having that network of people. And we have our little DOJ network that, uh, former DOJ lawyer (laughs) network that we we reach into every now and then um, depending on what the issues are. So one of my uh, really good friends from law school who works for a business uh, immigration firm said to me, you have friends, so don't feel like you have to ask all your questions on the listserv. Yeah, because it's 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 a bit intimidating for for new lawyers. I mean, we weren't new, but we were new to the private bar to uh, to ask questions and not want to appear. Like you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah,
3: totally. Yeah, it's absolutely. different. When I was learning in my first year, because I was, as I said, I was on my own. Um, I was not for profit, but I was on my own. So I was on the listserv like all day, every day. And so, but it wasn't as embarrassing because I was, everybody knew I was not for profit. Everybody knew that I was brand new. And so I didn't really mind. I was like, help me community. And everyone was super, super generous with their time. But as a senior practitioner, as I teach, take on new areas of practice like when I started doing refugee files I don't feel the same <laughs> uh, <laughs> candor to just like hey I'm gonna go out there and like write to the listserv as a like 20-year call being like can somebody tell me what the hell I'm doing because it's just okay. like you feel more like guarded <laughs> because it's like I'm supposed to know what I'm doing at this stage and so learning on the go at, at a certain stage in your practice becomes a bit more intimidating and uh, it's good to have friends in those days for sh- in those stages for sure
1: Well, especially Jennifer, you started as a solo in Thunder Bay after, right? Or were you part Mm. of a firm?
0: Uh, So solo in association with a criminal lawyer. Mm. And I was, I was Mm. intending to do criminal law um, and a little bit of immigration when it came up. Um, Yeah. And, and then it just turned into more immigration than, than I expected.
1: And you were in Thunder Bay where there isn't the same immigration no. lawyer community
3: network
0: Oh, so there's there's one other immigration lawyer who's really generous with me lydia stam um she practices about half immigration half family law so when i started doing this she was so happy because she was like do you know how hard it is to be the only person oh, and wow. to not have capacity when or, or to not be like she wasn't able to take on legal aid files anymore so i was able to get a legal aid um get on the roster the panel as it was then called for thunder bay and so so we had a legal aid lawyer that's great Um, now we we don't anymore because i'm not on the panel because of the clinic anymore so we we do send our legal aid work to lawyers in toronto which um i actually think is 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 not a bad thing um because i think volume is important when you're when you're representing people who have refugee claims and we just don't get enough volume so every claim much longer and you know um so but yeah so that that was great but it was also you know I I felt like my skills lay more in sort of like the agency kind of area um and and refugee claims and refugee stuff but um that's not necessarily what Lydia practices and so with a lot of the stuff you know it, it was the listserv and yeah it's definitely weird sometimes I hope people know in the listserv that like they're pretty much all i've got (laughs) for for questions like i can't i can't walk down the hall and talk to another immigration lawyer um and things just don't come up enough here that i have a sense of what the trends are so i really depend on on the listserv for that like i don't i don't think i could safely practice without it
3: yeah yeah it is quite a lifeline for sure
0: it really is Yeah. Yeah. So that was like picking up on your question about how hard was it to do the transition? Mm -hmm. um, The listserv definitely has made it a lot easier. The former DOJ group (laughs) has made it a lot easier. Um, there's also a great Facebook group, uh, the junior immigration and refugee lawyers, Facebook group, and that one's wonderful too. Um, mm-hmm. so like building those connections and getting to know people and even just following the issues that they're talking about has made it easier because there was something we used to have, um, at the DOJ, I mean, tons of training, tons of, you know, regular meetings, all the things you have time for when you're not billing your time, um, but one thing we used to do is case reports. And so if you argued something that was, uh, you thought, you know, important or useful for other people to know about, or, you know, maybe the beginning of a trend or the latest word on a trend or something like that, there was sort of a formal way of wow. sending out an email case report that would get distributed to all the immigration lawyers across the country to help you sort of keep up on the law. So it was just very easy to, to just, um keep up on trends and where the law was going and what the court was doing in the areas that were important to what we were practicing and so that was great but but I think what really when it really came home to me that that I was that I had it really easy at the department of justice in terms of being a lawyer was my first um application for leave was a pro bono file it was a family of about 15 people who had been waiting for 10 years for their overseas refugee claim to be processed and approved. And at the very last stage, in the second medical, one of them made a mistake that was fatal to the application, and it was refused. Um, And so the sponsoring group was just devastated and the sponsorship agreement holder and um, they came and they had no money to litigate it. And here at I had just started and I thought oh this will be a great learning experience I will take this on pro bono and so I I was like okay we just need to get affidavits from the people in the refugee camp
6: amazing.
0: who speak a language that only 60,000 other people in the world see, mm. most of whom also live in that in bedroom, refugee camp. Also live in that refugee camp. Yeah. And so we had to find somebody who spoke their language and who could translate the affidavit. We had to arrange for them to travel um 4 hours to a place where they could access the internet and phones. And you know and, and also, this was relevant, like these hardships, this, this, these logistical hardships were relevant to what had gone wrong with their with their application mm-hmm. and the way oh, that sure. to be had been made and the way that, you know, the procedural fairness letter had been responded to and all that kind of stuff. It was all relevant to that. So just like being exposed to that logistical challenge, whereas at the Department of Justice, when I needed an affidavit from someone um In a visa post abroad, I would write to my client contact and say, I need an affidavit from so and so visa officer. Can you please put me in touch with them? And then, you know, within a week, we would have our affidavits delivered and, um, you know, it was it was easy peasy. Um, the hardest
5: thing was the time no. change
3: right <laughs> yeah so it's like on on our side now it's like how come they you, you notice that the applicant's affidavit doesn't say anything about da 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 and you're like oh oh, 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 oh i <laughs> was just trying to figure out how to not make this person have like a traumatic meltdown you know it's like i didn't ask that question right it's like it's a, just a different world you know and so like trying to think on your feet about all of the like by the time it ends up in the applicant's record, it's like so many weeks and months of thinking, how would you ask this? How do you paper it? You know, like and these little like you know throwaway lines in the federal court decision. Well there's nothing in the affidavit that says this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah and that it actually makes because
0: I, I, you know, of course, I used to do that as a DOJ lawyer. I would, of course, say this. that's and your mean, job. Yeah, <laughs> and they did send it by this date, and blah 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 blah. Yeah, that's right. and I just wish that I had appreciated the fact
6: that
0: the difference in resources and and also like that the person on the other side of the courtroom, for me, the lawyer they might not even be getting paid to be there. Like they yeah. might've run yeah. out the legal aid bill. They might've run out what their client can afford. They but definitely ran think...
3: out the legal aid bill, but actually they probably <laughs> did not. Yeah.
5: Yeah, that <laughs> never then... doesn't happen.
3: Oh my God. <laughs> so, like, so go easy, you know, yeah. go easy oh, yeah.
6: grace
0: and just.
5: I have so I many know. bites in my ass from karma.
1: <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting oh, I like that expression yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also
0: one thing we haven't talked about is um is all of the DOJ benefits that make the rest of your life easy like just oh, yeah.
3: benefits well I was gonna ask about that too and I mean I remember once one of the first I actually feel like Nalini you might have been in this conversation when that, I was sitting at a table with DOJ and we were talking about like having kids Um, when you work with DOJ, because like one of the challenges is like, how do you walk away from your practice to go, you know, to go on maternity leave and then come back and still have the semblance of an actual client? book or do you rebuild all over again you know like um it's a really challenging thing especially in an immigration practice where it's not like you're working at a huge firm and somebody's going to just be i mean if you're working at one of those like you know ey whatever where you can just go away and then come back and they'll just give you more files but if you're somebody who's like running your own book of business you know it's like and so i mean that's one that i just kind of wanted to put out there but i'm interested in hearing about all the other benefits you're talking about
6: but that, when that started,
4: actually is one of the, when yeah. I started at DOJ, it was there was about six of us in my cohort, and one of the first things that was said on our first day of training was that just wait at least a year before you go on on mat leave. So mm-hmm. it was recognized that that was a benefit that you know women would take advantage of.
3: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, going back to Steve's original question, like in terms of the, you know, the differential experience for women practitioners, like... Um, you know I think that and it's not to say that men aren't taking parental leave now it's the same thing but at the same time like it's still a bit different that like if you're the one actually carrying and bearing the child and stuff like that like there are certain things to figure out do you go away do you not you know like how do you manage that and when you're a private practitioner it's sort of like at what cost will you be doing that you know and so um, you know for a lot of people that I've talked to who had a period of time at DOJ that did that weighed heavily heavily in um their decision is that they knew that they'd be able to go away they'd be able to have their family without any concern about it impeding their career um development and advance well, not even
1: just career development like as a as a business owner taking maternity leave could be anywhere from up to 18 months of uh, no revenue not even yeah. up to 18 months I mean as a business owner you could take as long as you want there's just no revenue yeah
3: my partner's exactly. water broke like i think within 6 months of when we signed our <laughs> our incorporation documents you know and she went on leave i mean it was it was it was hard like and i mean we were very much in support of her going off and her having a maternity leave but it's it was from the practical perspective it was really hard and our politics you know like um you know even though we had all the right ideas about it it was a really hard thing to do um you know
5: that's actually one of the main reasons oh, no,
3: that what? I
5: wound up taking so long to recover from my accident is that uh, <laughs> <when> I was <laughs> uh, in my fifth or sixth year at DOJ. I, yeah, I decided uh, to start a family, and that was a primary reason for staying there. Was I took a year's mat leave with each of my two kids. And then after that, I went to eighty percent time, which I could actually do. Like, and right. I, when I wor- said I'm working eighty percent time, I really did work eighty percent time. Wow! So, which was a really nice thing to be able to do with small children.
3: Yeah, rather than one hundred and forty percent time, which is what happened. Right. In- <laughs> <laughs> I have another. I have another juxtaposition
0: story: DOJ uh-huh. versus versus now. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, I had my first kid, you know, very typical not Um easy, easy, easy. I came back and it was actually really nice to come back because you know all those files that Stop. were driving and the you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it and I, I think it was then that I said, you know, I'd really like to focus on immigration. I'm not like public safety stuff so much. Um, and I was able to do that. So it was just it cleaned everything off the desk really nicely and then a couple of years later, that's when I got pregnant with the twins and that was not an easy pregnancy. It was really bad,
6: pregnancy.
0: Um, And I, you know, there was a complication on a day that we were getting a decision on a Supreme Court file that I had worked on. And so when that happens, you know, there's just all this reporting that you have to do up the chain to ministers and stuff like that. And I couldn't be there. I had to be on bed rest. And so the the other lawyer who was on the file, she took over and did everything. And then the pregnancy ended at about 20. So I was supposed to go off work at 28 weeks. And at 27 and six, I went into the hospital to get checked. And they said, you're staying here. You're done. So wow. the day before my last day of work at the DOJ, and I called my boss, um, Sandra Weafer, who's now, I think, the oh, director. yeah. She's amazing. Amazing. And, yeah. And I said Sandra, I can't, like, I'm done. And they packed up my office. They, you know, offered to bring me food. Oh <laughs> my
6: God.
0: Checked in on me regularly. <laughs> and then I had a hundred percent sick leave, a hundred percent paid sick leave. Oh my God. For that period of time. and That the so the boys were born at um. 29 and 1 29 weeks I was in the hospital for the week but I had nothing to worry about like I didn't have to worry about my files I could worry about my very sick twins and and I did right like they were they were very sick they were one of them was in the hospital for eight months so uh, so for for a number of months I got that sick leave then I switched to 93% mat leave My husband couldn't work because he was in that transition from training phase. So that was our only income.
3: Wow.
6: Um,
0: And it allowed us both to be in the hospital. All the time, which was really important. It was, yeah, a, you huge. know, a huge part of them getting better. And while I was in the hospital, I was, you know, meeting all these people who were like, what benefits do we apply for? And how do we pay for this? And how do we pay for this day? And, you know, my husband's got to go back to work. So I'm here doing this alone. And so it was just, um, uh, yeah I'm forever forever grateful to them ah, that sounds for that, amazing for making that easy. and then mm-hmm. pandemic so now I have four kids um the twins are doing great they're still a huge handful and then the pandemic <laughs> comes and I'm like well I I probably just need to close my practice and I did I I eventually sort of wound down my my private practice because they were little and we couldn't get childcare and you know I, my income is not as important to the family as it as it was before so so you know we're in a phase where we can do that but but yeah like at doj if i were at the doj for the pandemic maybe i would have taken a leave maybe i would have taken you know mm-hmm. but my, my job would have been there to come back to and yeah so that yeah. that support that material support is is very meaningful yeah, it's I mean, like that I'm, distinction I'm
1: during the um, government or during the pandemic was definitely apparent with how private yeah. practice had to figure out how to both work and maintain profitability, you know, right away in March 2020. And I didn't get the sense DOJ was as impacted by the pandemic, but like there was the option of COVID uh, 699 leave for federal government employees that you wouldn't see that you didn't see in the private sector
3: it's often like when I meet students like female students who want to know like how do you deal with the like wanting to have a family and wanting to be in private practice you know it's um it's always just a super interesting conversation because like I, I want to hear from Rafina as well about um you know whether or not this uh this was something that impacted on on her experience at DOJ because for me like I was it I was not for profit and then I got pregnant, and that's when I used that opportunity to transition from not-for-profit into private practice. Like, have my baby, then I went back to work when she was like five months old, four months old, you know, because it was. And I just, I, I, I tried to like work half-time, and my husband worked half-time. But it's sort of like when you're not in that kind of a supported position, you're kind of trying to figure out how to make life work around family obligations. So. um, you know it's it's an it's a massive benefit for sure
4: I didn't take advantage of the mat leave while I was at DOJ I don't have children so I didn't didn't benefit from that but there like you guys were saying there are a lot of there are a lot of different types of leave that you can take while you're in government yeah. there's education leave and um yeah. uh what's the one where you can take a leave if a family member, like
0: compassionate like a,
4: care, kind
0: compassionate of something care. like that. Yeah, 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 leave with income averaging where you can take the summer off and,
5: yes, yes. yeah,
0: have sort of averaged over, or you know, if you wanted to go on a world tour or something like that, yeah,
5: yeah. you know, and there's it's this thing called thing. vacation.
3: Yeah, right, right. The last time you had that was when you were with DOJ. That's that's the one
4: thing I definitely miss is being able to 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 pass my files off to someone else. Yeah, yeah.
6: Because you
4: can't. I mean, that you know, you get a message in your portal, and you have to either forward it onto the client or respond to it
3: in some way. Yeah, you
6: can't.
4: You can't can't just ignore it. Yeah, no. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And that's the thing, too, like, I mean, you can maybe there is somebody in your office who can do some of the pieces of work, but the relationship with the client, like, especially if it's like a compassionate application or a litigation file like the trust relationship is with the client and they want to hear from you not from your associate or even your partner like it's Mm -hmm. like you know that you know the background you've been working on the file for however much time so um and you think about it when you're away you know like it's just a bit different it's that sense of ownership of the file I think it's a little bit it's a little bit different
5: it's so funny when my spouse and I used to go on family vacations we'd pull up in a hotel on our road trip and he'd say so, yeah, I got to get out I got to deal with something he'd get out his laptop and I'd be like oh
6: can't we over- <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right
3: what's <laughs> wrong
6: with you yeah.
0: there was there was one lawyer who used to say at the DOJ and it's always stuck with me there are many horses in the justice stable
6: <laughs> yeah. ah, that's
0: hilarious and it's true like if you fell ill if your kids fell ill if something happened like everything was going to be fine yeah Yeah. somebody else will pick it up and they'll do
3: as good a job as you will yeah yeah it's awesome yeah yeah Yeah. I'd like to have another horse in my stable right now that would be like amazing (laughs) somebody's just like at my disposal whenever I yeah it'd be really nice yeah yeah
1: Yeah.
3: this has been a very interesting conversation I gotta say
6: it's
1: (laughs) yeah definitely There's definitely like a lot of topics. Are there any closing uh, in the interest of time? Are there any closing thoughts or, you know, you encounter someone who's debating a uh, either starting a career in DOJ or private practice, or they're looking to switch from like one to the other, you know, five, 10 years, 17 years into career. Um, Any final thoughts?
5: I just want to say you know because it probably didn't come across in, in the things that I said. I mean I spoke about some of the things I appreciated, but I really did appreciate my time at DOJ and um No, I think that came across that I, me, I
3: really
6: okay. I mean, Yeah, yeah. It really <laughs> yeah. did.
3: Yeah. It's not yeah, where you wanted okay. like yeah, yeah. No, I think that um that yeah, I think it it's clear that you you really got a lot out of it and that it served yeah, you know Absolutely.
5: Yeah. And the relationships, the people, sure.
3: the
6: time, the
5: Yeah. And all the collegial relationships and people and being able to hash out uh, arguments and so on with with your colleagues is really fantastic. Um, But like I said, I I wouldn't go back. And even when I was going through hell, when that partner uh, that I was working with got Mm. disbarred, I mean, it truly was hellish. Um, But I I I didn't. And there was a job available at DOJ right at that moment. I didn't even blink. To before knowing that I wouldn't go back. I yeah. And not yeah. because of any bitterness or anything like that, but just that I really value what I do now. And in terms of advice to others, I mean, it probably is easier to make the switch after, you know, if you are going from public to private, I wouldn't wait as long as I did to do it.
3: <laughs> yeah. But I
5: do think that both have a lot of, of merit and value. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Uh One thing I would say is that I remember when I was contemplating going to law school and somebody said to me that no matter whether you decide to become a lawyer or not, that it does teach you how to learn. And I'm not sure that I would say that law school did that for me, but certainly being in the law field did. And I think that like, when we've talked about like having to learn a new area of practice, like that sort of stuff doesn't really intimidate me anymore. Um, You know? So like, I made the joke about like, okay, now I'm going to start doing refugee work. And so it's like, yeah, there's that like a little bit of, Um, you know, personal apprehension about taking on something new and not knowing like I can't speak from experience how long this is going to take or what's going to look like. And I can't, you know, normally I like to paint a picture for my client and I wasn't able to do that in my first files and all that sort of thing. But I have a strong sense of my own ability to like acquire the skills to learn that new thing. And I think that, you know, this whole conversation has just reminded me that like you guys have all like, practiced in one area and then picked up and done something, even though it's related, it's still quite wildly different. And, you mm-hmm. know, like business ownership and, you know, like kind of seamlessly made these transitions. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, uh, right, you know, while figuring out how to manage family obligations and all this kind of stuff, like, yay uh, yes. Good job. (laughs) I have one final sort of uh, stingy question, which is um, the relationship between the private bar and the DOJ in Vancouver, I think, is generally very good. But I am curious as to whether or not it's the same between the private bar and the DOJ in Toronto. (laughs) because I've heard that it's not always quite as like rosy in the Toronto office between DOJ and and the private bar I'm just curious because some of you have worked both or
4: um it's a much larger bar yeah and not everyone does litigation but I would say that overall um we don't Jen was saying that you, you know people would reach out if they had a question on a file, or they wanted to direct issues, that wasn't the—that's not the practice in Toronto.
3: Okay, I see. Yeah, um, you know, they so don't get along with one another, so I'm everything they is, is <laughs>
4: <laughs> everything. They would is say it
3: themselves. So. Done by
4: paper until you got to the hearing. So, I see. or unless there—I mean, even if there was um, a request for "quote unquote" settlement, uh, that would be done in writing as well. So right. there's very little face-to-face, if you want to say, interaction with the private bar. But for the most part, I think that um, there's a few squeaky wheels. Like I said, in my six years there, there was only one lawyer on all, over all of the files that I dealt with that I had any kind of negative interaction with. Um, so I would say overall, it's, it's a pretty... Good bar to deal
1: with. Is there the same yeah. like in um, in Vancouver? Every fall, there's the CBABC throws something called the Fall Reception, where you know it's usually at least I'd say two thirds to seventy five percent private bar, but there's a contingent of uh, Department of Justice lawyers who come out for a purely social function. Is that does that exist in Toronto and Winnipeg? Not here.
4: No. no. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of social interaction between DOJ lawyers and the, in the private bar.
1: Yeah. When I was uh chair of the CBABC, there was actually a DOJ lawyer who, oh, what was his title? Anyway, he probably had a bunch of different titles, but. Uh, he was on was, the
3: CBA section, right?
1: Yeah, he was, um, <laughs> he was, yeah, he, uh. Then there was for a while, this DOJ lawyer just to like, and it would help facilitate, well, port of entry tours, but also the uh, social events Mm -hmm. between DOJ and and like other government bodies and uh, private bar.
0: One thing I wonder about the difference in practice between Toronto and Vancouver, and like I said, like the last time I worked at DOJ um, was in 2014. So this is maybe stale, Um, but in Toronto, most of my files were rpd files and in vancouver it was more of a mix between immigration ministers decisions and our office uh, yeah like yeah yeah. and i think like the nature of the communication that's going to happen between council is different on those different kinds of files because rpd files those are harder to resolve like the the considerations that go into resolving those files are a little bit different because um that's a quasi independent tribunal and even if maybe they made an error sometimes it's better for the error to see the light of day um in court and to be decided in court not that you would you know defend a clearly wrong decision but i think it's a little bit more difficult to yeah um to set aside the decision of an independent tribunal whereas a minister's decision it there's there's a little bit more there maybe to talk about in terms of resolving?
3: Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, often, even just in terms of the quantity of reasons, you know, you're talking about an eight page decision versus a like four lines of garbled, yeah. templated text in a um, in a roll nine reason or like in, in GCMS or something like that. It totally makes sense. I, I have to say, too, that I think that um, it's a question from the private bar of whether or not people are really exercising good judgment and seeking to resolve files at an early stage like I think some you know like I think it's really the responsibility of applicants counsel to manage client expectations you know if you're looking at a redetermined like a, a JR of an RPD decision yeah you know, to be like this is not something that's going to settle <laughs> like you just- I I do wish that, like, I mean, I understand that when you're talking around a file, though, I do wish that there was more, like, I understand that these are privileged conversations. But at the same time, I think, to this point of the kind of merry-go-round of decisions, um, and cases going back for redetermination, I just wish that there was a bit more sharing about the content of why something was being resolved without litigation. You know, I feel like a lot of problems could be avoided if there was a more open um, conversation and I don't know um, you know privacy is always spoken of as being one of the reasons why there can't be a more candid conversation about what error is being conceded when there's a decision to resolve a file without litigation but I feel like you know, if there could be more of a like substantive conversation about the file before it goes back to the visa office, I don't know if that's um, a kind of pipe dream on my side, but I kind of feel like um, that might have more <laughs> of a positive impact on the overall justice that goes on to the resolving of the file in the long term.
4: It might be a pipe dream because uh, the client contact is a buffer between the DOJ lawyer and the visa office. So, the DOJ lawyer doesn't know everything that's going on. We just have the community. And, and oftentimes we don't even have direct contact with the decision maker in the visa office unless you need an affidavit from them. Um, so there are things going on behind the scenes of the client side that DOJ doesn't, doesn't know about and they're not privileged to. So they might not have any idea or any knowledge that the file went back on redetermination or on consent, and that it was refused again until it appears on somebody else's desk, because it's probably not going to go back to that
3: same of, course. of January. But like, maybe this is a naive question, but like, let's say, for example, a decision is made to resolve a file. Um, why is it that we don't actually get any information as to what error is being conceded?
6: Hmm.
1: Wouldn't, I mean i like if it was our you know if it was our client um, I would imagine they'd want to disclose as little kind of as possible right like I don't know why IRCC would be different especially to maintain maximum flexibility for the next officer like yeah that's my own
5: yeah. client's position on that shifted over time back back and forth um there were long there were years where yes we could provide a, a, and we had to actually and the court was yeah, requiring yeah. it provide a reason and so we would come up with you know the most obvious reason yeah, or, yeah. or really broad there was a breach of fairness yeah. you know <laughs> and not, not no explanation as to in relation to why but there was a breach of fairness um and then at a point that the instructions changed. So, and I suspect that it's exactly uh, as Steven is suggesting,
1: right? You just, you only give don't what want you to have to the
3: discretion.
6: Of
1: yeah, this, of actually to system. give an idea, Deanna, so this was the case that uh, Jennifer and I were opposite on was there was a uh, JR of a temporary resident visa refusal and IRCC then CIC didn't want to provide the rule nine and they
0: unredacted unredacted.
1: yeah okay the part of the basically a rule nine that wasn't completely redacted and (laughs) um, like the um doj filed a motion saying we agree that the decision was unreasonable and we want um the client to consent to the matter going back to a different visa Mm -hmm. officer and lauren was uh brought in to help me argue it and lauren made a big Stink about, well, who cares what a different visa officer says in terms of whether the decision was reasonable or not, we want to see the reasons and also we know the next officer uh, should have full reign, there were strong suspicions on the client's end that um, whatever the reasons were in the redacted JR would just be like never seen and there would be a you know false refusal on different reasons right. in a subsequent okay. application. But the whole argument that Lauren had made was that um, it's not for IRCC to limit the discretion of future officers. So even in the terms of a settlement, you know, in theory, that next officer or the outside of a court order, um, because the court is supposed to review it, that next officer should have full discretion in how they assess the file. So I think that's probably where IRCC is coming from.
3: Yeah, it makes sense. I'm just noticing how long we've gone. This has
1: been
3: a very, I feel like we could carry on, but uh, uh, I'm mindful of how much time
1: we've taken already. No, thanks. Uh, Thanks for coming on. And definitely if you guys do have any questions, reach out, uh, reach out to us. I think that's been a theme of uh, today is how it's always, especially if you're running your own business, uh, a team of people across the country to work with.
3: Definitely.
5: Absolutely. Thanks. That's appreciated. appreciated. Yeah, vice versa, for what I may know. (laughs)
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It was a really fun conversation.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods